0: Following Art Trap production is brought to you by the friend Embassy and has been made possible by donations from listeners like you. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Please visit slash Pachak for your free audio book download. And Dragon's Lair Comics and Fantasy. Check out their website at DLayer.net. That's
1: D as in Dragon, Layer.net. Live from Area 51, this is Doctor Who Podshock. Doctor Who Podshock OK, well,
0: let's do it no, you now. Whatever it is if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs>
2: For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest running science
3: fiction television program. With Lewis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep.
1: Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh no. And fan mail for James.
2: Over 40,000.
1: Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifrey Embassy. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh yeah, we blew
2: that. (laughs) I'm the doctor, and who are you? Who
1: are you? The Gallifreyan Embassy presents Doctor Who Podshock, episode 161. My name is Ken Deep, alongside Mr. Louis Trapani. Hey, hello. And unfortunately not with us due to work commitments is James Norton, but uh, he, he will be missed. But we have a very special episode that was very New York-centric. Uh, we have a special interview with Mr. Gary Russell. He was in town in August two thousand nine He was here in Manhattan, and Lewis and I visited him prior to the d w n y meetup and We had a chance to sit down and interview him and As a bunch of chatty geeked up Doctor Who fans, it's a long one.
0: Yeah, it was a very pleasant afternoon we as Ken just said, we met up with with Gary Russell, and we sat down with him and had a very lengthy interview a very casual but interesting interview and it's um it actually ran longer than we expected so what we're going to do is uh break up the interview into a couple parts and this will be the first part that will be uh, in this episode of
1: doctor who podchuck that we'll be presenting to you yeah the, the start the the early parts of the interview cover um some of gary's earliest involvement in doctor who both as a fan and as a professional and then we'll probably wind up in part two and the one, the part that I'm sure is, we're saving it and teasing it. Uh, we talk a little bit about the Sarah Jane Adventures and and series three of the Sarah Jane Adventures, which will start airing in October 2009. And we also talk about Dreamland, the new animated adventure. Mm-hmm. And that'll be, of course, in in episode one, Podshock 162.
0: If you don't know who Gary Russell is, just imagine a, yourself as a Doctor Who fan, which I, I'm assuming you are, since you're, you are listening to this episode of Doctor Who Podshock, but imagine yourself as a fan and just like everything, well, I don't mean to make it sound like everything just fell into place for him, but it, it just was a, a series of, of events that really worked out so well for him that he was able to um, turn his love and passion of Doctor Who into a career, and it's really interesting.
1: Yes, it's it's phenomenal, and and as Lewis said, we we make it sound like it was completely accidental, but you still have to have an enormous amount of talent and gifts, as well as hard work. Oh yes, definitely. You know, the man is a is a, a very proficient writer. Uh, he's also an actor, amongst other things, and apparently a damn good businessman. So, we'll, you'll get a chance to hear that when we get into the interview. Writer, producer, had...
0: director, actor—is there anything that he hasn't tackled yet?
1: No, <laughs> oh, I may maybe musician. I don't know. We didn't ask him about that. <laughs> Soon, <laughs> but it was a, a fascinating interview. We had a chance to sit down in a little outdoor cafe, uh, a Cuban bar restaurant. If I remember yes, not mistaken. Yeah, it was Cuban with bamboo. Is very very curious. Uh, Right around the corner from the Peculiar Pub where DWNY has their monthly meetups. And uh, thanks very much to the good folks at DWNY for helping arrange this.
0: It was an outside um, cafe area of the restaurant. And luckily, it started to rain, but luckily it didn't pour. It just had a momentary lapse of rain there, which... um,
1: and you may hear some some background noise, some some uh, atmospheric noise going on it, as it is it was in, in the middle of the village. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so that's uh, that's something that'll be coming up in a in a few minutes here on Podchuck. But first, we wanted to cover cover a couple of bits of news. We wanted to get this interview out as fast as we could, and uh, some other episodes were in post production. At the same time, we want to have it out prior to the. The Sarah Jane Adventure is starting to air, so we you know the, yeah, this is something that's very topical.
0: Which which you just reminded me is a news story into itself because it's now been confirmed that the Sarah Jane Adventures, which uh, series three, which was originally supposed to, was not, was, was originally assumed to have uh, started in September, that would you know premiere on the BBC in September. Now is um, is October, and we don't have an exact date though. There. People are speculating the 15th, so it's um, next month.
1: Yes, it's right around the corner, so by the time this gets out, it'll give you a little bit of time to hear the two-part Gary Russell interview, hopefully prior to those going to air. And as always, this interview may, for some, be filled with spoilers, so be forewarned that we're going to talk about all aspects of Doctor Who history from then till now
0: yeah well it's it's pretty much a known fact that David Tennant will be in two episodes of the Sarah Jane Adventures, and we should also make a note that gary russell is um is basically this is this series three of, of the Sarah Jane Adventures is really his his project, so um that's why you'll you'll get a lot of content from the Sarah Jane Adventures in this interview
1: you know they say the key to to a good interview is learning something from the subject that you didn't already know. And there's and there's a very funny one in this episode. I don't think it'll make it into part one, but we'll we'll talk more about <laughs> it part two when, when, when part two comes around. And it's so funny because within a day or so of this uh, of us recording this, out comes this huge press release on Dreamland. Out comes this beautiful still of of the tenth Doctor and the TARDIS uh, right in the middle of of. An animated, animated right? cell
0: from the series or an animated <laughs> yeah. illustration. So
1: it, it's it's kind of comical. You'll see what, what that's all about when we get to it. But let's go into a little bit of news. As Lewis just mentioned, Sarah Jane Season 3 is looking like it's mid-October 2009 now, a little bit later than we had thought. I'm sure there's some, there's well, some timing issues involved here yes. with getting this show on the air with David Tennant's appearance, perhaps having it, Lead into Waters of Mars, which may be on Halloween. It may be two weeks after that. The fourteenth, I guess, would be fourteenth or fifteenth of November, mm-hmm. possibly. Um, we're getting uh, two two bits of information, and neither one of them have been confirmed officially by the BBC. So.
0: Yeah, uh, as I said, originally it was thought that the Sarah Jane Adventures series three would be starting in September, and I don't know if that was anywhere officially posted, but that was the word on the on on the street. The one word on that. the
1: street, <laughs> <laughs> but not the word but, from the sidewalk cafe.
0: But according to the CBB, the CBC, which is the children's, um, you know, BBC, they had uh, an event, a Sarah Jane Adventures uh, event, which they uh, gave lanyard badges to children at this event, and on the on the badge it says. Brand new series starts in October, only on the CBC. I'm sorry, the CBBC, which is interesting because before that there was a Digital Spy article that had mentioned that it was going to be transmitted on BBC One and CBBC. So now it may only be on the CBBC. I don't know. We'll we'll know better as time
1: goes on. When they make the official press release, yes.
0: And also in it will be um, Nick Briggs and um, Nigel Havers will be in the series as well. We have the episode titles, too. Uh, that goes into kind of spoily territory, so I'm not sure if we want to mention the, the episode titles.
1: No, and they are available online for those who are curious.
0: They're on like our they'd... site, org or pachog.net. will get you there, and there's an appropriate spoiler warning.
1: <laughs> well, do we want to talk about this gigantic spoiler in the room? Uh, it is a little bit late. This news came out a couple of weeks ago, but we haven't really recorded in a couple of weeks as we... Uh, we took a little bit of a break just after this this Gary Russell interview. So if you you know the Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi and Podshock episode 160 were actually recorded a couple weeks ago, and since then there has been some on set spy reports so do you want to sound the spoiler alert (laughs) okay so we just avoided
0: (laughs) not going into spoilers with the sarah jane titles but we'll go into spoilers here so it's uh i guess it's a matter of um importance as far as um well one is
1: directly related to doctor who so Uh, sound the spoiler alerts then all right because this this will be a a pretty decent sized one there's the spoiler alert you have a chance now to skip ahead if you don't want to hear this I was spotted uh, a Dalek on set, on a Matt Smith set, so there's confirmation that the Daleks, or Dalek, singular, will be in one of the Matt Smith episodes. Surprise! 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 A Dalek yeah.
2: story. Well, this
1: kind of, this kind of, this, the the cat was kind of out of the bag with this, I think, pretty early on. Yes. When when the tabloids are reporting Daleks will be in Matt Smith's first episode. Now, if you now, there's no indication that this is definitely the first episode, but we also heard that it was a uh, a night in the museum style story, and then there were Nazis involved, or it was World War Two, or something. And the Dalek is spotted on top of a, I think it was a library or a museum or something. But in no RT I don't have the sort article in front sort of sort of me. Now. So it all kind of boxes together. And it, if, if it really is the first story, it means that the, the set, the pictures that we saw of Matt Smith in costume going back to mid-July. a month and a half ago now would mean that they, they're shooting out of order. Uh, kind of what they did with Peter Davison back in the day, where perhaps they, day. they shot the second or third or fourth story first, and now are shooting the first story second or third. Or, you know, so they've mixed it up, so maybe Matt Smith gets a better handle on on the part, mm-hmm. which I I think is a great idea. I think it worked very well, and I think it's a smart move.
0: There was also someone had picked up a audio recording of this is just audio that was you know that was recorded on the scene, on location. So a lot of people were, were kind of judging this audio a little bit too critically, and one has to. And, and the the person that had made it available has now taken it down because he was upset that the the, the remarks and criticism that was given to the audio. But it was this was no indication that this was going to be the final audio. If you ever were, if you ever take part in a production, there there are takes after takes after takes that are done on a particular scene and the audio that's recorded on the scene isn't most most of the time isn't even the the actual audio that's used in the in the final yeah. piece so you can't really judge something on on the audio that was given at a particular scene that was shot you know and anyway but i can't even play it for you here because the audio is no longer available but
1: well you know there's additional dialogue recording ADR that you see it in in movies and in, in the classic doctor who series if we were talking about the Pertwee era or the Patrick Troughton era or something, yeah, they they may, not have, they may not have had time to go back and do additional dialogue recording. I mean, pretty much what they got off the boom is what they got, and that was the, mm-hmm. the audio that, that went out uh, and was transmitted. But in this multi-million pound production of Doctor Who, and with the amount of sound effects and, and mix downs that they do, you can't judge by on-set recordings at all. So, I remember for years these like movie mistake books and websites and stuff keep telling me that Mark Hamill screamed Carrie in oh, Star yeah. Wars. Oh
0: yeah,
1: right? It's, it's, can, can you? Uh, it's just completely ridiculous.
0: Yeah, people, <laughs> you've got they to read it. into it and then they 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 listen to it and they're like, oh yeah, I heard it, I heard it. You didn't hear it. <laughs> let you get all
2: the and take all the Hey, I knew that was more you than
1: money. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. oh <laughs> no. you didn't hear it. And, and this is a, a special effects and sound effects laden movie uh, with an Academy Award winning sound editor. And he's going to let that go through. I, I don't think so. It's ridiculous. Yeah, nice. But well, I go off on a tangent. But he's kind of – this is one of these memes that people just start repeating and it's mm-hmm. like enough. Yeah. You know. Yeah, there was yes, there was a guy wearing a wristwatch in in Spartacus. But there was no carry being shouted in Star Wars. Some are true, some are not true. <laughs> okay.
0: So, yeah, some of these be, just become urban legends and they propagate on the net and they just continue to go on and on. Yeah. Sort of uh, like the the sneaker supposedly in Return of the Jedi or something like that. <laughs> yeah. In space. So. Okay, well, the next bit of news just came out today as we're recording this is um, black Blackadder creator Robin Curtis is to write for Doctor Who. He's um, best known, as I just said, for creating the popular series Blackadder. Richard, Richard Curtis, Robin Curtis uh, uh, played Savage. Did I say? Did I? <laughs> I I feared I was this like, was going to wow, Robin Curtis, huh? <laughs> did I say Robin? You did,
1: yeah. <laughs> you well, know, my lips would, sometimes be, have a mind be very of their cool. own. That would be very
0: interesting. <laughs> Richard Curtis, yes. Richard Curtis, yes. because you know when I first saw this, my I said Robin Curtis, and I said no, it's Richard Curtis. But anyway,
1: well, uh, Roan
0: Akison had played. You just Black started Ours.
1: a whole new rumor now. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Highly in Robin Curtis of Star Trek Three, now in <laughs> Doctor Who. Yes.
0: Well, he's mostly known for his um, he's probably jumping up and down going, I'm going to work. I'm going to work. <laughs> he's mostly known for his romantic comedies, like four weddings and the funeral and um, five of the same thing. Yes. <laughs> I and I won't comment which one it is.
1: <laughs> it was an old married with children joke. Uh, Al Bundy said that mm-hmm. he what what's on TV tonight or something? He's like four weddings and a funeral. It's five of the same thing.
0: Exactly. Move along. Well, this was in, originally reported in The Sun, and he's going to be writing a story for, obviously, the Matt Smith doctor, the 11th doctor. And interesting enough that the BBC News has also reported on this article as well, which led some credibility to it, because usually anything that's reported in The Sun, we usually you know take it with your usual <laughs> grain of sand and salt. No, wait a minute. Whatever.
1: So The Beeb has said that this is true. No, The Beeb has
0: reported false. that the, that The Sun had reported this so the the, the <laughs> BBC news has reported that the sun has reported this
1: <laughs> okay Am
0: and I... uh and henceforth we are reporting that the sun and the BBC have both reported this well we have we we are reporting that the the BBC has reported that the sun has reported this <laughs> <laughs>
1: wibbly wobbly timey wimey
0: yes so um anyway he's um for those black adder fans uh, which i know many of you are out there i i myself i have seen a little bit of it i haven't really gotten into it i just not because i disliked it or anything like that i just didn't have the time to really be exposed to that much of it so um i know there are there are a lot of diehard fans out there but and supposedly there's some time traveling that takes place in black adder and supposedly um Richard Curtis has a fascination and an interest in time travel. So it makes only sense that he's now doing a Doctor Who story and basically he reveals that he's doing this. He has three kids, and the kids are tremendous Doctor Who fans, and you know, so he's doing this to um gain some um, street cred <laughs> some some respect from his kids. <laughs> so um right. anyway, so right. it's um interesting. A lot of, uh, I know when we um I tweeted this out earlier, a lot of people were excited about it.
1: All right. What else do we have in news? I know it was kind of a slow. It's been the past report. couple of
0: weeks have been very slow as far as Doctor Who news goes. Um, and they
1: did. We we had we, this um, greatest hits package thing that the confidential people put out. The uh,
0: the yeah, the, which I haven't had a chance to see yet, but it's a. I
1: I watched the first. I haven't watched Villains yet. I watched Companions and and. The I'm Doctor.
0: almost afraid to ask. Do they? Is it? Is it all inclusive, or is it just 2005 and onwards?
1: It's 2005 and onwards.
0: Yeah, that's so. It's not really the best of Doctor Who. It's only the best of recent Doctor Who.
1: Yes, it, there's been a lot of criticism leveled against this, and I, I think a little bit un, un, unfairly, and uh, maybe expectations. We're very high on this. I, there were there wasn't with me. To me, it's just just um, uh, a placeholder until we 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 had a, a little taste of uh, oh wow yes oh I I love Doctor Who. I haven't seen in a while. My like, gosh, has it been since April? That kind of thing going on, and then we'll have a little we'll have Sarah Jane to lead us into waters of Mars. Yeah, but
0: why ignore the forty some odd years you know that preceded? 2005 and that's that's my
1: i think i think as russell t davies and, and david tennant are are bowing out in particular russell this is more a tribute to the russell t davies era more than it is a tribute to doctor who all right well then maybe it should
0: be the the, the best of the 10th doctor or the best of the i mean it just it just seems packaged one way and and you know, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really seen it, so I don't want to. I took it
1: for what it's worth. And it. I think if if I have a criticism is that there wasn't a lot of new material. There was some the use of some older interviews and things like that. There were a few new things, a few old things and, it, and very confidential, like with um, a mix of footage interviews and music videos.
2: But it is what it
1: there, is. I, I wasn't – you know, <laughs> there, was, there was no expectation on my part that I was going to put this on and go, holy cow, there's something new I've just learned about Doctor Who. It, it wasn't. It was a, what it was supposed to be, a fluff piece promoting Doctor Who. And well done at that. I've always enjoyed Confidential, and and, and this was –
0: this was just a. Well, I enjoyed a, I enjoy confidentials more, but when they do retrospective type of stuff, I enjoy it more so when they're more inclusive with all Doctor Who instead of just focusing on, you know, just the Russell T Davies. Nothing against Russell T Davies, but th- there's more to Doctor Who than just Russell T Davies.
1: Yeah, I, 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 and there's. May, uh, like I said, it, we're dealing with expectations. Maybe people thought they read Doctor Who and they thought it was going to be this thing about 10 or 11 Doctors, and it wasn't. It was pre- pretty much just about the the relaunch, the, the last few years of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. So well, if you don't go in with any expectations that you're going to see some vintage interviews of Patrick Troughton, you'll be fine.
0: No, we'll have to come up with something to appease those people, <laughs> <laughs> which we do. Uh, but as we were saying, it's hasn't been a lot of Doctor Who news, which means when anything that, that hints towards anything that's somewhat Doctor Who related, it gets splattered all over the, the, the news media. And such was the case with Roger Moore when he had, um, upon hearing that Timothy Dalton, which we've reported um, in past episodes, that he will be in the end this of This is still under the spoiler umbrella, right? I guess so, though it's pretty much. um, I think I think the BBC has announced it already that that he's in it. I think um, no. Okay. I don't know. I know they did with Richard um, with John Sim. So I don't. I. I don't know. (laughs) It may. It may still be under the spoiler umbrella. But okay. It's it's if you haven't heard this it's been all over the press all over the media as far as um if you, I think it's
1: great. I if love if Timothy you, Dalton.
0: If you follow Doctor Who at all that Timothy Dalton is going to be in um they well they previewed they they had an end of time preview at Comic-Con that Timothy Dalton was the narrator, narrator of. Yeah. Now th- that's the other thing is that Richard T Davies uh, which, <laughs> what am I saying? Oh <laughs> Russell T Davies at the convention said that um that he's playing he, that, that that Timothy Dalton is the narrator. Now, does that mean many people took that meaning that that's his title, the narrator? And maybe it <laughs> is. Maybe he's the narrator of this story. No, he was the narrator in. of the trailer. Or was it just that he was the narrator of the trailer? That's how I took it to mean. But many people are saying Timothy Dalton as the narrator. <laughs> well, uh, well, which could it, be it, the case. I'm not saying it could it's not. be the case. He but could
1: narrate the end of time. It could very well be the case, and where it he's. To be, he's reflecting on it. It wouldn't be the
0: first time that we see Russell T Davies write something in that respect. I mean we did it with Rose when she, um you know when she's on the bus it opens up and she's reflecting back, you know, on the day that she died. There was um and there's a scene in um Torchwood Children of Earth with Gwen reflecting back. Yeah. So it's you know it's not unlike Russell T Davies to repeat something that works.
1: It isn't and perhaps this is a a verbalized version of the watcher Mm -hmm. yes let's say Mm -hmm. where it's either this interim doctor or it's the doctor in the future or it's another time lord or it's nothing like that whatsoever we don't know we don't know where this is going to go so it's very possible that he is the narrator but i doubt the character's name is the narrator oh uh, hello who are you i'm the narrator (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fantastic and i mean if this was silence in the library i would say definitely but <laughs> and i am the listener yes well
0: roger moore who was the bond before timothy dalton had he found out about this it became um, knowledge to him and he upon hearing that he said that um i believe timothy is to appear in one of the new episodes so if they ever want and if they ever want anyone to play his dad i'm available roger moore <laughs> said <laughs> Throwing his hat in the ring, we always said that uh, James Bond was probably a time lord himself.
1: That's true, and I like Timothy Dalton. I like Roger Moore. I'm a James Bond fan. And I just had to get Sean Connery in the mix, and... uh, Roger Moore is a is a national treasure in Britain. And so, if he wanted to be in Doctor Who, I have no problem with it. And Timothy Dalton's awesome. I'm I'm really excited to, to, that he's in the show. I, really, I, I I genuinely like him as an actor. I'm curious to see what he's going to be. He could read the ingredients on a box of cornflakes and make it sound interesting. So, I, I he's narrating. This
0: vision of like a, a Gallifreyan High Council with Timothy Dalton and Roger Moore and Sean Connery and how cool would
1: that be? <laughs> that would and be Pierce so cool. Brosnan, even George and Lazenby. that other guy. No, okay, <laughs> George Lazenby. Hey,
0: I'm sure yeah. he's available
1: he might he may just be that would be fantastic it would be it would definitely create all kinds of interesting fan fiction within 24 hours of that going out like that but, okay let's stop our our stuff and get right into the the Gary Russell interview being that's that's the main reason we're here but first we wanted to say thank you very much to special friends of the of Shock, big time supporters Dragon's Lair Comic and Fantasy, they uh, we want to thank them for their support of Doctor Who Podshock.
0: Yeah, they're fantastic.
1: Yeah, Dragon's Lair Comics and Fantasy have been supporters of Doctor Who Podshock, and they continue to be. They have two locations in Texas.
0: They have stores in Austin and San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> they sell Doctor Who action figures, CDs, and comics. And well, it's not just that.
1: I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff. That yeah, they do. They,
0: well, they're Gaming, a full fledged comics, you know, collectible store. So anything from the anything that you would expect a comics and
1: fantasy store to sell, they have it. And I know we have a large Doctor Who fan contingent in Texas. I know that because I get the emails. Oh, so absolutely. If you're a Pod Shock listener, if you're a Doctor Who fan, pay a visit to one of the two Dragon's Lair locations. Let them know you're a Pod Shock listener. Let them know that you're looking for a place that is an outlet for your Doctor Who needs, and they will accommodate you. I mean, this is if you're vocal about it. If you're out there and you're saying, "Hey, I'm a Doctor Who fan, and I heard about it on Podchuck, and I want to, I, you know, I'm looking to, for a place to buy my Doctor Who comics or my figures." Or if you're into something else, you say, oh, I, "I have some some gaming needs. I heard you guys do gaming, and and I haven't found a spot." Well, there are a couple of places with Dragon's Lair with yeah. san antonio and and, it and it's it. not just limited
0: to texas folks it's they sell nationally so anywhere you live they'll ship it you can just go to their website dot that's d as in dragon layer.net and um you can contact them that way and you can or you can call them at 512-454-2399 and they'll ship it to you
1: it's just a, a a spectacular idea. When you really think about it, you go and you say, I'm supporting Dr. Who Pacha. I'm a Dr. Who fan. I'm here. I want to pick up this merchandise. If you're looking for a spot, people that are Dr. Who fans themselves, I mean, the people who, who run Dragon's Lair are Dr. Who fans. That's all you need to know. Well, that's
0: the important thing so you just touch upon language. there is that by supporting them, you're supporting us. This episode wouldn't it be possible if it wasn't for the, our sponsors and, and advertisers, such as Dragon Slayer. So, really, uh, when you go there, please, you know, make it known that you heard it here on Doctor Who Podchuck and let them know that you know you're a supporter of us and you're um, supporting our and show you, and making it and getting what you want.
1: If you want Doctor Who fandom to grow in texas this like i said these the folks the good folks who run dragon's lair are doctor who fans and as business owners if they see that people are down there supporting doctor who they may say you know what if we have a convention maybe we could do maybe we should get a doctor who guest you know maybe we should uh make a bigger investment in doctor who here in texas i know there's doctor who fan groups down there like i said I know the the scene based on some of the people who are active in that scene contacting Podshock when we've called out for for fan groups to to give their announcements. So this is a time to step up as Doctor Who fans and and, uh, pay a visit. To Dragon's Lair.
0: They're, they're Five, also a retailer one.
1: with a conscious as
0: well, because I know last month they ran a special for um, a, a good week or so where they gave 10% of all their sales to raise money for uh, medical expenses for science fiction author Aaron Austin. So, you know, it's not really? just a, you know... A it's cold, not a machine, is what yeah. you're saying. This, yeah. is like I mean, a,
1: this is like a, uh, what we, we call a mom-and-pop situation. They're real people. It's not a giant mass corporation. You know, with giant gears, five one two four five four two three nine nine or dlair dot net is their website. Let them know you heard it on Doctor Who Podshock.
3: Hello, my name's Wendy Padbury, and you're listening to Doctor Who Podshock. Hey,
0: remember when trying to find something to listen to was a chore? Then came podcasts. Now you can find just what you want and listen to it when you want. Your audio, your way. Doctor Who Podshock is made possible in part by listeners like you. We want to say thank you to all those that have and continue to support the show through the years. You could do the same by visiting podshock.net and click the donate link. Thank you, Natalie Duran, for your recent donation. Support like yours helps make this show possible.
1: Welcome back, Doctor Who Podshot, Ken Deep alongside Louis Trapani, and Billy and Chris joining us as well with the legendary Gary Russell sitting outdoors in Manhattan right before the DWNY meetup. You've been kind enough to take a little time out of your holiday, Uh, just fresh back I see from Midtown Comics where all things geek are purchased. All all
3: things are good. All things are good. I went in there today and thought, I'll buy a couple of graphic novels. Oh, and I'll buy that one. Oh, and that one. Oh, and that one. And then as I was buying them, the man said, "Um, that's going to be very heavy. You're not walking far, are you? And I said, yeah, I'm walking down to roughly the Houston area. And he went, oh, well, that could break your shoulder. And he was right. And it it,
1: it didn't didn't stop you from participating? No, of course not. Good God, no. (laughs) I'm
3: going to buy comics. Of course I am. I've been torment and pain and agony, but I still have to have my fix. Now,
1: you are, in addition to working on Doctor Who over the years and being involved in Doctor Who Magazine and Big Finish and the, the shows past and present. You're also a fan. You started as a fan, is that? I'm still a fan. And you're still a fan, as exemplified by your trip to Midtown Comics.
3: I'm a fan of of many, many things, including comics, obviously. But yeah, Doctor Who is... I was three, I think, the first time... Well, I know it was the first time I watched it. I remember watching The Regeneration from Heartland into Troughton, not really understanding what it was, obviously. Um, To me, on an old, grainy, black and white TV set, it looked like three old-age pensioners falling around, and one of them fell over.
2: (laughs) <laughs> I remember
3: that very very vividly from that point on it I, have, I had um, two older brothers so on a Saturday afternoon if my mum and dad had gone out shopping or something they would leave me in the care of my brothers knowing that the safest thing was they'd sit me down and watch Doctor Who with them and therefore I have all these scattering of odd memories of episodes going throughout the 60s and I just loved it I fell in love with it I fell in love with the music I think the music and the title sequence made me go I need to watch this and I remember Aspects of that far more than I remember bits about the programme. I just remember every week the thrill of that music starting. By the time you get sort of towards the end of Trouton, is where I'm there avidly every single week.
1: And aware of what's going and on. And aware in show. of what's
3: going on, and, and even now having memories of it. You know that thing you get sometimes when you, you see something from your childhood and it's backwards? Or am I the only person this ever happens to? You watch a show and you go, I remember that as a kid, but I'm sure the man came in from the left mm-hmm. hand and walked across yeah. right across mm-hmm. the screen, but actually it's the other way around. There are millions of moments like that for me in Doctor Who in black and white and, and early purple era. When seeing them, you know, 20 years ago when videos first became popular, and they were all sort of grainy and sent over from Australia, and we'd sit there and watch them go, oh, this is so exciting, I'm seeing the invasion or the war games for the first time. And I would be sitting there going, oh no he came in left to right when this went out before they've done something to this or or the primord hand the fist that came through the window it went from left to right not right to left so my my jumbled up brain that's how i remember things is is it's how they're different from how they really are is it a strange
1: feeling when you see it again is yeah. it disconcerting is it like it's not of...
3: disconcerting i'm i'm one of these strange breeds of people for whom uh, nostalgia is what it's all about. I, I love reliving things, I love nostalgia, I'm a great fan of anything old, and therefore, it's kind of, I, think, I think because of Doctor Who, that's been built into me since I was three, four years old, was to like television, to like that sort of thing, and so therefore, as the years went by and these things became available, I just wanted them from a nostalgia point of view, rather than looking at it from the point of view of television, per se. It was just all about reliving my childhood.
1: What's the first episode that you really have a, 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 not those kind of memories, but you can say, I remember from beginning to end, and it made some kind of impression on you. Do you remember one, one particular story you just said, that's just singed, just seared into my memory?
3: It's probably, if you mean that I remember from start to finish, blow by blow, it's definitely the War Games. That, that's the one I can go back to and say, I remember watching that at the time, and, and knew exactly what was always going on. And when the DVD came out, or the video came out other years ago, I was going, yep, remember this, remember this, remember this. But prior to that, I mean, Seeds of Death, I remember very, very vividly. The Dominators, I remember vividly. Uh, it wasn't until I got the chance to see them that I realized the Dominators and the Crotons were different stories. Because I, for some reason, thought that was all part of the Dominators. My first real vivid memory of Doctor Who, other than that regeneration, was just a snatch, is the, what was obviously the repeat of Evil of the Daleks, where I can remember watching that, ironically, every other week. And this is because on ITV at the time was The Adventures of William Tell. And clearly, I remember having these arguments, I wanted to watch Doctor Who, and my middle brother wanted to watch William Tell. So my mum's solution to this was, one week it's Doctor Who, and one week it's William Tell. So of course, William Tell wasn't an ongoing thing. It was a self-contained... So my brother really won out there, because he could watch William tell and he got a complete story. I would see every other Doctor Who and we're going, what's going on? (laughs) This is mad. And I remember as a child getting so excited, I saw the final part of Evil of the Daleks and that big fight in the Dalek city. And as you know, I would have been four, four, possibly five at that point. And being so excited by the Emperor and so excited by Daleks versus Daleks, that I ran out into our back garden and played Doctor Who and the Daleks. And then thought, oh, it hasn't finished yet. I need to go back in and see how it all ends. And of course, by that time, it was all over. And my brain had just gone, I'm so excited by Daleks. I'm going to go and play Daleks in the garden. And I didn't see the end of the programme. So I've never seen, to this day, the end of Evil of the Daleks.
1: Have you listened to it at least?
3: Uh, probably a hundred times. <laughs> okay. And I love it. I still love it. It's a great story. It's brilliant. So yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's where the nostalgia... And then when you get into Pertwee, for me, is where it's absolutely blow by blow, burnt into my memory. And that's where I'm the fan from. It's, it's the Pertwee year, it's what I grew up on. It was the period where, at school, the cool kids were the ones that watched Doctor Who. The ones that didn't watch Doctor Who were slightly weird, and you'd think, oh, that's strange. Why why don't you like Doctor Who? Why, why aren't you watching this programme? Of course, as the years went on, by the time you get towards the end of the Tom Baker run, is where university, I think, things shifted, and suddenly Doctor Who became a very well, it a very culty program, very weird, very strange, and therefore the cool kids were the ones that didn't watch Doctor Who, and the nerds were watching Doctor That's Who. That's how it
0: is in the US. <laughs> but it wasn't like that.
3: There's a period, it and it's like that. that Pertwee period, I think, that, that in Britain, everybody watched and loved Doctor Who, and if you didn't watch Doctor Who, there was probably something a bit weird about you. I remember going to kids' parties. I remember the, the final episode of Day of the Daleks, and it was my friend Paul Trotman's birthday. What would he have been then? What's that, seventy-one? So we'd probably been his seventh or eighth birthday party. And everybody there, the party stopped at five fifteen or whatever it was, and we watched Doctor Who episode four, of Day of the Dollars. And every there was no question about it. It wasn't sort of saying to some of the people at this party, "Oh, we're going to watch Doctor Who." Bad luck. It was naturally assumed that you wouldn't have this party if there wasn't going to be a stop for half an hour to watch Doctor Who, because it's what everybody did at that time. It's very weird. And, and that's an era that you can never recreate You never get that back again, I think. where, where And I think, well, I say that, but maybe now, yeah. with David's Doctor... The world doesn't stop when yeah, he comes on. Every kid loves it again. Yes, of course, I'm, I'm stupid to say that. I'm thinking in terms of classic Doctor Who, which it never happened again with. But yes, now we're back into that era that I had when I was a kid, that Doctor Who matters. And it's so fantastic, mm-hmm. and, and so, so proud of it. Do
1: you think that's probably the biggest achievement of the show coming back, beyond getting it just on the air? It's, it's, yes.
3: Yeah, it's mainstream. Yes, to make it mainstream, to make it popular rather than popularist, and just to make it a phenomenon again, where people will stop. People will arrange their day around, mm-hmm. making sure, as a family, mum, dad, son, daughter or sit down and watch Doctor Who. And again, that's something that's different with The Perk Where You So, I was at school, boys and girls watched Doctor Who. But then as Doctor Who carried on, it became a very male thing. Mm-hmm. Girls didn't watch Doctor Who with later Tom Baker and Davison and Colin and Sylvester. They do now. And that was a David thing. I don't think that was necessarily a Christopher Epperson thing. I think a lot of girls did come into it because of Rose. But
2: mm-hmm. I think
3: once David came in suddenly, as well as young girls, the teenage girl market suddenly so went, ooh, which I don't think they were ever going to do with Chris. But with David Tennant, suddenly he was a pin-up. Suddenly he was in, in girls' comics and magazines again. That's, that's pretty cool.
2: Yeah.
3: A, 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 a industry that's been dominated by uh, your David Cassidy's and your Donny Osmond's mm-hmm. and right up to sort of Robbie Williams and things like that, suddenly David's broken into that and he is a pin-up. On Teenage Girls' happened. Bedroom. That That's happened. never happened. That never
1: happened for Doctor Who. You no. never had Peter Davison or Tommy. No. Either.
0: But we, before we started our interview, we, we were talking
1: about trips. Yes, we're getting trips. Hooray!
0: It's
2: we're in Cuba. Sun? It's because of Cuba.
1: It, it's, yeah, we're, Cause cause Cuba. we're in Cuba. Because <laughs> we're, yeah. <in> we're, <laughs> we're in Cuba. We're in Havana. <laughs> we're getting cool. rain and sun at the exact same time in an outdoor patio with
3: bamboo and... Yes, so, bamboo is wrong. Considering we're meant to be in Cuba, why is there bamboo here? That's just wrong isn't it? You don't get goo in South America. Anyway, I sorry. <laughs> Moving <laughs> on. <laughs> but before we started our, our
0: interview, we were talking about conventions and the differences between US and uh, and gatherings in mm. the UK and so you were talking about your early memories of Doctor Who and being a kid watching Doctor Who did at that time was there did you ever have outside of just watching the program any experience in with fandom or a a signing, seeing
3: anyone connected with the show? No, because fandom per se didn't really exist. I mean, I know there was the Doctor Who fan club back in the sort of early 70s, Keith, I can't think of his name. The the Appreciation Society? No, no, before the Appreciation Society, Mm -hmm. there was the Doctor Who fan club. And that sort of ran through the later Pertwee and into the early Tom Bakers. Then there's nothing. And then the Jazz started in 76. But as a kid growing up, no, I had no involvement, other than just friends at school and, and buying Target books Mm -hmm. on an avid basis, there was no awareness of any kind of organised fandom. But you didn't need it, because everyone at school was crazy about Doctor Who, you didn't need to seek out like-minded people. That is definitely something that came later. I don't know, did one begat the other? Did the creation of fandom in 76 proper, with the twas, did that somehow turn Doctor Who into a cult and turn it into this kind of male-only, nerdy sort of thing? That's interesting. Is the fact that fandom became organized and therefore became known, is that what then actually splintered people and stopped it being seen by everyone? That would be an interesting thing to examine and I don't have an answer to that question. But is fandom actually responsible for making itself geeky and culty?
1: Because that's probably what happened with Star Trek. It started as this revolutionary show in the '60s and in syndication in the '70s, but when they started actually having conventions in the '70s and people would get together and put on their rubber ears, it suddenly went from being um, that this... was the conception that
0: uh, perception yeah. that or, that mainstream people had, right? It, yeah, it was perception because the
3: surely with Star Trek, and I, you know, I could well be wrong here, but surely with Star Trek, the organized fandom side of Star Trek happened very early on. Because it happened, you know, with, with the end of season two and the potential yeah, cancellation the write, the and the writing campaign. campaign. And suddenly, uh, Thingy Trimble and all her people, they kind of created fandom. So you actually had that organized fandom, even if it was just via letter, mm-hmm. before convention started. And the convention, first Star Trek conventions, what? Yeah, was
1: gonna say, 71? Yeah, say,
3: something like that. Yeah. So it didn't take long. I mean, that's only like two years after the writing campaign that everyone gets together. So I think that kind of fandom created itself, whereas with Doctor Who, clearly it took fifteen, sixteen years yeah. before um, it got anything like sensibly organised. I say there was the fan club in the in the early seventies, but that was that wasn't what the DwaZ was when the DwaZ started, which is with a newsletter, with with a database of everyone, fanzines, all that sort of stuff. I mean, the, that's the greatest thing I think fandom ever gave us is late 70s was the start of the proper doctor who fanzine boom and obviously there's always been fanzines for everything in the world but in doctor who terms through the dwas the try allowed people to advertise their fanzines in their newsletter and suddenly everybody who had access to a typewriter and quite a few people who didn't um suddenly was in the ability to create a fanzine. Mm -hmm. and so by the time you get to about 81 there are probably 150 fairly decent well selling fanzines, and we're not talking about by well selling, I'm not talking about selling 10 copies, I'm talking about people who regularly sold 500 copies and were going to print shops and getting them done properly. That, I think, is in such a small space of time to, to take off in that way, and that, therefore, is what created essentially uh, Doctor Who Weekly, became Doctor Who Monthly, and then Magazine because they were able to go all. Oh, There's loads of fanzines, therefore why don't we do something professionally and why don't we use those writers? Why don't we go to these fandom writers and say, come and work for a professional magazine? And and DWM has survived on that ever since. And now you're at the stage where this is this this dearth of fanzines. Fanzines basically died in the late 90s. With the birth of the internet. With the birth of the internet and, and all sorts of other reasons as well. And suddenly, I wouldn't like to be the editor of Doctor Who magazine now because I began, where are my writers coming from? Because when I was doing it I and mean, all the previous writers were doing it, their writers were coming up through fandom via fanzines and you would buy the fanzines and you'd read fanzines you'd go, this person can write, mm-hmm. or this person knows how to edit, this mm-hmm. person knows how to, you know. The trouble with the internet on that stand is that everybody writes reviews, everybody does everything, but there's no editorial hand, so nobody learns how to edit, nobody learns how to yeah. edit themselves, it's all stream of consciousness. Yeah. And that makes it very difficult when you're a magazine editor and you're looking for new writers because you don't see that talent. And if you do see that odd bit of talent and you say to them, do you want to work for Doctor Who magazine? Actually, I paid for writing. And they go, oh, yes. And they send something in and you send it back to them saying, well, this works, this doesn't work, can you change this? They kind of go, whoa, you're editing me. I thought you wanted me as a writer. And there's an arrogance that's come with it. And it's quite interesting. I think the change in that now in the last couple of years, as I've been looking at a lot of YouTube stuff, And you see these kids on YouTube, anything between 8 and about 15, doing quite intelligent Mm -hmm. observational reviews and commentary and everything about Doctor Who. And I'm thinking, yes, finally, this is where the new breed of intelligent, articulate fans are going to come from. If only we can take them in and just show them that actually things do need to be edited and, and... three heads thinking about something is better than one because everyone strives to make something the best it can be and everyone chipping in a bit helps. Mm -hmm. But I do think that YouTube and things like that, and indeed podcasts, are where the new writers are gonna come from after this kind of 10 years of absolutely nothing.
1: How will it play out though? Like it's not where you're predicting it, but how do we get to that end result? How do you get to the point where someone can finally say, to make that transition to, to trying to into a professional.
3: Well, because I think that that then comes down to the editors of Doctor Who magazine and other sci-fi magazines having to put the time and effort in into taking risks and What's training these talent people. Scouting and- Effectively spending time on YouTube looking at these things, going, "Yeah, there's a spark there. Let's get in touch with that person." Let's face it; it's not difficult. Everyone puts their email address and their website, everything on YouTube. You get in touch with these people and say, "Do you want to meet? Do you want to talk about it?" <laughs> if they're under fifteen please bring your parents and work on it from that point of view but it is going to take hard work whereas you know it was easier when everyone came up through fanzines because they'd learned to edit and now they're going to have to be taught to edit but it's not the end of the world and i think 5 years ago we were looking at it going there's never going to be a future there's no new writers coming in and i think youtube is is where the future lies
1: your era in Doctor Who magazine, you had the ability to tap into a lot of these writers. Yeah. I mean, you
3: have... Well, i would known them all for years as well. I mean, that's the other thing. Having been, in, I mean, I, I took over as editor in, of DWM in 91. Well, I've been in fandom since 79. So I'd known a lot of people. I actually knew most of the people already writing on DWM because they're all mates. All I did was turn around and bring a load more mates in. Because I thought, well, if I've got the opportunity to edit a magazine and, and write about Doctor Who, then let's get all my friends in to do it as well. And the, the ones you trust, the ones you know mm-hmm. can do it. Sure. You know, I was very keen on doing that. Always keen on sort of saying to people, well, you've been doing fanzines for 10 years. Have a break. Now people get paid for it. makes a hell of a difference. And it's interesting that there were some people who couldn't do it professionally. There's, there's something kicked off in their heads and they went, no, I don't want to get paid for this. I've enjoyed being maverick, and I've enjoyed not being, uh, towing the party line, I suppose is the better way of putting it, and they didn't want to work for Doctor Who magazine, but a majority of them did, whether it was writing articles, writing comic strips, drawing comic strips, whatever. You guy, my my mission for the three and a half, four years I was editing DWM was to give as many of my friends who I thought deserved it a break, and and give them the leg up into the professional world, and I think 90% of those people, have done it and have got, you know, are big professional writers or whatever. I'm not saying they couldn't have done that without me, because I bet they probably could, but I feel slightly smug. and go, <laughs> oh, I might have had a hand in that. Actually, the truth is, no, of course, they'd all have achieved it anyway, and I'm just a, a numpty that happened to be in the right place at the right time.
1: When you work, when you go to work for something like like Doctor Who Magazine, is there a difficulty in in separating the party line and what maybe you truly feel about a particular thing? Do you ever find yourself that you would ever censor yourself or say, you know what, I have to be careful? I
3: probably thing. should have censored myself a lot more when I was at DWM. <laughs> it's tricky. When I first started, J&T was still around. He, everything was going through him. His famous blue pencil was very active. And I learned a lot from that because, actually, when someone's put a blue pencil through something three times, frankly, if you haven't learned that on the fourth time you don't put it there in the first place, then you shouldn't be doing the job. Mm-hmm. And I twigged very quickly. I thought, right. I can see what JMT likes and what he doesn't like, so there's no point in saying that because it'll get a blue pencil through it and will annoy him. And I don't want to annoy him, I want to make him happy. So I would guide people down that path or I would edit down that path. And actually had a very good working relationship with John. I mean, I'd known John for so many years anyway, it was, it was quite easy. But then there came a point, John left the BBC in 93, and that was the point where Doctor Who didn't really matter a great deal to anyone at the BBC. Mm. And suddenly I was like, well, John's gone. Who's going to take over keeping an editorial eye on the magazine? And I remember getting this lovely letter from uh, BBC Worldwide going, oh, let's face it, no one knows Doctor Who better than you do. You don't need us to look after you. Ha <laughs> ha, I'm thinking, this is it. They've given you the they, keys to the give car. They've given me the keys to the car. I'm going to go out and crash it. Um, but actually I didn't. I, I was very sensible and, and probably a bit, too, sort of, um, a bit too much of a stick in the mud. Whereas I think when Gary Gillett came along after me, he leapt at it and went, right, total freedom, the BBC aren't interested, I'm going to push the boundaries. I don't think I ever pushed the boundaries. I think I was, I was very safe. And I admire what Gary did because he didn't play it safe. He didn't really mind if he got a few people's backs up as well. He made a very good publicly accessible, fairly grown-up magazine out of Doctor Who magazine, which I never did. I saw Doctor Who magazine at that point more as a reference work. Because there was no news, there was no series. We'd all been led along so many garden paths about it coming back, and it was clearly I thought, it's never going to happen. So to my head, with the videos coming out on a regular basis, and, and the Virgin books, I thought the thing to do with DWM to make it survive was to make it a reference work. So yeah. I always, I would structure the magazine around either the archive or a DVD, or video rather, release of what was coming out that month. Interviews would be around that, features would be around that. So the whole thing it was almost, to me, was like a giant work. And then when Gary came in, he threw that right out the window and went, no, I want to make this cute, which I sort of started to do from a design point of view in my last year with lots of white borders and, and, and the pictures being centralized and decent captions, fairly witty captions and things like that. But he took it to the next level. And I think I think the only reason Doctor Who magazine is still existing now is because of what Gary did in that lean period between me and then when the TV movie came along it gave a real chance to reinvent it but at the same time because the TV movie didn't hang around he also had that brilliant luxury of we've got a new doctor for the comic strip we've got a new birth of life but actually there's no one to toe a party line to still because it's out of production again so it gave a nice little kick in the middle which he was able to ride It's a bit like surfing he was able to ride that wave for the next I know, Gary was there for donkey's years. What, did he do five years, I think, after that he stuck around? I believe so. Um, and made, I think, you know, Doctor Who magazine what it is today. It w- I genuinely believe if Gary hadn't had the foresight and the, 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 the chutzpah to actually do what he did with Doctor Who magazine, I don't think there would have been a Doctor Who magazine for Clay to look after when the new series came back. Um, I just think it would have died.
1: You talk about the... Paul McGann movie, and you wrote the novelization. I did, and, were, and also involved in the, the making of the book, or co-writing it with. Uh, how early on were you aware and involved? Because it was a, like you just mentioned, there was a ton of these like things, these rumors about Ulysses the Explorer, and all these kind of wacky versions I of I didn't
3: believe that there was a TV movie until the day Gary phoned me and said, "I've got a photograph in the office. You should come and see." <laughs> And I was working elsewhere in London, and I popped by, and there's the photograph of Paul McGann with the key to time. And I went, oh, it is real then. (laughs) And he went, it's real. I went down there. We did the photos. I'm off to Canada to cover the filming when it starts. It's like, wow, this is really happening. And then for me, my attachment to the novelization came about because the day before I got fired from Panini, people who made Doctor Who magazine, I'd been out for dinner with uh, Rafe Montague, who now of course is one, one of the restoration team, but at that point was working at BBC Worldwide on various things, or I think it was Radio Times actually. And he'd said to me, there's going to be a Doctor Who computer game, and they need a Doctor Who expert to do all the factual stuff on it, and I've put your name forward, hope you don't mind. And I went, well, you know, I'd love to do it, but I'm really busy with Doctor Who magazine. Well, he said, you know, when it happens I'll come back to you, and, or get whoever's in charge to come back to you and ask you again. That was on the Tuesday night. Wednesday morning I go into Marvel at 10 o'clock in the morning and they go, you're leaving the building by midday. And I remember thinking, oh, good thing I didn't turn down that computer game, isn't it? So I got involved in the computer game, Destiny of the Doctors, uh, wrote the factual side of it, the database, wrote a lot of the script stuff for the Doctors to do. was involved in the whole thing all the way through the production of that and worked with a guy called Andy Russell, who's actually no relation to me whatsoever. And he and I got on quite well. And then it would have been early 96, the phone rang, and it was a woman from BBC Books called Rona Munro. No, she wrote Survival. Called mm. oh, Rona something else. Um, how oh, embarrassing. Um, and she phoned me up and said, oh, hello, you don't know me, I'm Rona, whose name you're going to forget in 10 years' time. Uh, we're doing a novelization of this new Paul McGann TV movie, and I'm sitting there going, okay, she obviously thinks I work for Doctor yeah. Who magazine still, why is she telling me this? And she went, and uh, we're looking for a writer for the novel, Um, and your name's been put forward by Andy Russell. He said you were a nice person. Do you want to do this book? And I'm told by the people I was working with that I went a very peculiar shade of white. (laughs) And I went, yes, I think I would like to do that. A novelization of the TV movie. In my head, all I was thinking was, ha, 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 screw you, Cornell, I've got the gig. Um, And I may have said that to him quite a few times in the weeks after that as well. Uh, This then brought me into huge conflict with Virgin, because I was also in the middle of writing a book for them, Scales of Injustice. And I had to say to them, hi, do you know this new TV movie? Oh, yes, we can't wait to do the books based on that. Oh, right, well, I'm writing the novelization. No, you're not. You can't be writing the novelization. We're going to do it. We're probably going to get Paul Cornell to do it. Uh, no, you're not. BBC Books are doing it and they've asked me to do it. And I just thought I'd let you know that I'm going to be sort of have to take a step back from doing Scales of Injustice for a few weeks because I've got to do this in three weeks. Thinking that Purge and go, oh, well done. Off you go. They didn't take it very well. Not personally, I think, aimed at me, but the whole realization suddenly that there was going to be a book mm-hmm and they weren't doing you it, do. and they were completely out of the loop, and they had no idea they were going to be out of the loop until jumped up, twat, here, phoned them up, and gloated <laughs> at them. So that didn't go down very well with, with them. But yes, I, got the, I went in to see this Rona lady, and she said... they are scratching you off her
1: list right now. <laughs> yes.
3: I'm sorry. And she went, there's the first draft script, go away and read it. This is in the days before Watermark scripts and and... NDA forms you have to sign and mm-hmm. things like that. He says, oh, here's a script for a major TV movie. Just take it home on the tube. They're reading it going, oh, la, 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 la. People probably looking over my shoulder going, oh, Doctor Who movie. Oh, blah, blah, blah. yeah, do you want to look at this? Oh, yeah, look at this bit. And I went home and I thought, I have no idea what's going on in this movie. I quite like the story, but I couldn't visualise it. So my question to them had to BBC Books was what visual material have you got? Because I knew they'd started filming. In fact, the day I went in for the meeting was the day I knew they were filming the stuff in the back of the ambulance mm-hmm. where Bruce, the snake, takes over mm-hmm. Bruce. I, mean, I didn't know that at the time. I just know that subsequently having done a book about it. And they went, oh, we don't have any pictures. And I was thinking, well, I don't know. I, I looked up Daphne Ashbrook. This is the very early days for me, of the internet. i was a complete technophobe. But I'm not even sure if I did have the internet or whether I went to somebody else's house for the internet and looked up Daphne Ashbrook, you know, on dialogue. <laughs> chuk, 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 chuk. comes this picture of Daphne Ashbrook from *Start of the next generation under loads of make-up all that really helped I have still no idea what Grace looks like and then they found me the thing that really I had couldn't understand from the script was the uh, what I now know is the sort of um, clockwork orange thing of, that holds McGann's eyes mm-hmm. open. the script just didn't, un- didn't describe that accurately at all and I said look there is this entire sequence it's a fairly major sequence I genuinely, I'm never going to be able to write this. I need to see a drawing or something of what this looks like. And I got faxed over to the BBC, and I went in to look at it, and went, oh, I see, yes, now I get it, right. Years later, i remember this conversation, well, not years later, about a year later, I remember this conversation with Phil Siegel at a convention, saying, you know, it's such a godsend that you, you faxed over that picture of the, the eye thing. I understood it. And he went, faxed over what? I said, oh, did you not know this? Oh, yes, somebody faxed over this, this top-secret drawing. He went, no, I sent you, care of the BBC, a complete set of 500 every design drawings. He said, I did that the moment they told me who was writing the book. He said, because I knew who you were, because I was reading Doctor Who magazine and everything. He said, I knew who you were. He said, did they never give it to you? And it turned out that sitting in a drawer somewhere oh, at BBC Books had been all the design work for the entire movie, and I could have had that when I did the TV movie, which would have explained everything. Had costumes, I had seen what the TARDIS looked like, all this stuff, and I knew nothing when I did the novelisation. But I enjoyed doing that novelisation. I added loads of stuff in that BBC Books then cut out. All the other Doctors were in there at one point. Ace was in there at one point. Um, Only in terms of references. The bit where uh, they look into the Eye of Orion, Mm -hmm. and the Doctor sees McCoy... Well, in the novelisation originally, you went backwards, so you went McCoy, dum jump, jump, dum dum right back to William Hartnell. And there were just a reference at the very beginning to the fact that he'd left Ace, or Ace had gone off to meet her Russian count, or something like that. <laughs> and they took all that, and went, oh, no, no, we want this to be a complete standalone. And I was thinking, well, it's not a standalone, it's got Sylvester McCoy in it. You know, if they hadn't put The Seventh Doctor into this movie, I'd accept that, I think it's a really good argument, make it a complete standalone. But it wasn't. It was still part of Doctor yeah. Who. Mm-hmm. You can't say, well... You can mention one Doctor, but you can't mention any more, it's just a stupid book. They were paying the bills and I was too nervous to say anything else. So that's how the book came along. Um, most people don't like it. I actually think it's quite a good little novelization. But it's only good, I suppose, to me because I'm proud of it and because it was written from the point of view of not having a clue what anything or anyone looked like.
1: How different was that first script that you got in?
3: Did you said, Not oh, that hugely. Was an- to be honest with you, not hugely. It was pretty much it. I mean, I got fed new scripts as they went along. The main things that changed was all the stuff on uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, which was not in that first draft I had at all. They never went near the Golden Gate Bridge. They never did the whole stopping the traffic and, and the policemen and all that stuff. That was all complete. That turned up in a later script. It's like, oh right, oh I see. That was the only major change, I think. I mean, there was obviously changes of dialogue, but in terms of the blow-by-blow of what the story was. It it was all pretty much nailed from that first shooter's. See, spot. I
1: always had the impression that you might have that you were involved earlier on that that again some of these other script ideas that were floating around and especially that oh, no. you were the, you no, know, the editor know about of magazine them. and things like that. Well, well no, because
3: I'd left by then. See I left I left DWM 19... The movie
1: ideas have been kicking around forever.
3: Yeah, but nobody believed it. Nobody ever believed it. Well, there's too much evidence to say oh, it's just another fantasy by somebody, like so many of these things were, you know. Oh, CBS and Steven Spielberg are going to make a movie. Mm. Amblin are making a movie. Yeah, of course they are, because <laughs> Steven Spielberg's company is going to make a Doctor Who movie. Oh, bugger it, they are. Oh, look, there you are. No, I, I I had no involvement until until the day I got that phone call from or from whatever her name was, to ask me to do <laughs> the book. At which point, I be, I then... So I wrote the book, finished the book in April, I think. It came out quite soon after that. So the movie was, it was May over in, in England. I can't remember when it was here, but in, in England it was Maybank May well. yeah. Holiday. And then a week after that was a convention in Manchester that Phil came over to. What's the convention before it had gone out? It might have been the weekend before it went out or the weekend after. Oh, no, it was the weekend before it went out. That's right, because he played the theme music to people for the first time. And it was lovely. What he actually had with him was, was not the finished synthesised version. No, sorry, it wasn't the finished orchestral version, it was a synthesised version. It was Debney had done it on his keyboard, and he had it on a cassette, which he gave me. I said, oh, that's a great piece of music. Oh, I'll have the cassette, he said. Somewhere <laughs> in my house, somewhere, I have this one-off great cassette of the, of the demo version of that piece of music. And I think today that's probably why I still love that version of the theme, even the orchestral. I think Debney's version of the theme is magnificent, Mm -hmm. I just love it. But then, I'm I'm tragic, maybe it's because I wrote the novelisation, but I do love the TV movie, I still have a huge fondness for it. I'm getting off the point, sorry, what I was going to say was, I then met (laughs) Philip Siegel at this convention, and said, oh, I'm the guy doing the book, and that's when he said, oh, did you get all the artwork, blah, blah, blah. And he and I just hit it off really, really well. And he said, look, if ever you're over in America, call me. Every February. Yeah. Well, at that stage, I hadn't done conventions in America at all, never been to one. And I was like, yeah, great, you yeah. know, thinking, yeah, some big American Hollywood producers, oh, whenever you're in America, give me a call. Well, it then turned out that because I'd done the TV movie, so I got invited to the Chicago convention, the Big Visions one, <laughs> that, that year. And Phil was there, and I think EG was there as well. And Phil and I were sat next to each other at an autograph session, and he was signing millions of things, and I was signing the novelization, and a couple of other books I'd done. And somebody brought up a picture to him of the TARDIS console. And as he was signing it, he just nudged me and he went, huh, that's, that's the front of a Volkswagen Beetle. That's the badge logo turned upside down. <laughs> and, and he started pointing at things on the console and telling me what they were that Richard Hoodlin had, had nicked. And I looked at him and I went, there's a book in this. So you should do a making-of book about the TV movie. And he went, all right, you're going to write it? I went, yeah, all right then. He said, good, go and sell it to someone. So I went back to England... And I went straight to Virgin. By this time, they'd sort of forgiven me because they'd lost the license. There wasn't much they could do about it, but they still had the license to do factual books. And I said, do you want to do a making of the TV movie? And they said, yes. And they commissioned it and that I would write it and Phil would do bits to go with it. And I said, it has to go out with Phil's name. I said, it's got to be Philip Siegel with Gary Russell. And the reason for that is Phil's the person who sells the book. But in book terms, the phrase with rather than and always tells you that actually the with is the person that wrote it. That's why people, you see something with someone. If you see an and, it usually means a co-write or a ghostwrite. But with actually means they did all the work and this person he's just chipped in book. now and again <laughs> and he's selling the book. Phil did, I mean, I've got to say, Phil did twenty-five, thirty thousand 30,000 words of that book. I did 98,000 words of that book. It was only meant to be 70,000 words. This is, and Virgin were quite upset by this and going, well, it's far too big a book and... They procrastinated after it had been delivered about when they were going to publish it and everything. And eventually, for whatever reason, they dropped out. And I thought, well, that's a big shame. And Phil was really upset. Uh, But we'd both been paid. But it was a shame. So I then took it to BBC Books. Oh, and by this stage, of course, Gary Gillet designed it. So, you know, I was able to go to BBC Books and say, here's a book ready to go to the printers. And they went, No. TV movie wasn't very successful. We'll do it as a textbook, but take all the pictures out. I'm going, you've got design pictures, you've got pre-production photographs, you've got everything you could ever want for a making-of book, and you want to take the pictures out and make it a a little paperback? (sighs) No, thank you. At which point, out of the blue one day, I get a phone call from this guy at HarperCollins. Who says to me, oh, you don't know me, my name's David, I'm, I'm in charge of the dead people department of, of harper collins which meant that his responsibilities for tolkien and agatha christie and um guy who does learn the witch in the wardrobe c.s lewis they were who david looked after he looked after the catalogue for dead people but he's a huge doctor who fan and says to me virgin i know of, of i've just read in doctor who magazine virgin have pulled out of doing it do you think harper collins could do it my brain's going virgin bbc books HarperCollins, hmm, all right. So I said to him, yes, and it's ready to go. Seriously, and he, and he said, well, give me a printout, and I went in to met him at HarperCollins, got on like a house on fire with him, and dumped, there you are, black and white printout, Gary's words, Phil's words, Gary Gillett's designs, there you go, and all he said to me was, our books are about an inch bigger. <laughs> so I went back to Gary, and I said, How long would it take you to make everything one inch bigger across 100 and whatever it was pages? The expletives from Gary I will not go into. (laughs) But bless him, he went down over a weekend, because he was still working at DWM at the time, and he did the whole thing down in Tunbridge Wells on on DWM computers. And over a weekend, he re-laid out the book to, to a one inch wider border. I took it back on Monday morning to HarperCollins on a disc, said, there you are, exactly as you wanted it. And they went, this is great, can I have a new cover now? Because we don't like the Virgin cover. And I was over the moon with that because what I'd always wanted was Richard Hoodlin's design sketch of the TARDIS melding into a finished version of the TARDIS. And Gary thought that was great as well. And I said, funny you should say that, there's a new cover already on that disc. And they looked at that and they went, that sells the book. And they published it there and then. And it was totally coincidental that it ended up on a company as big as HarperCollins which was very useful for me because i continued working for HarperCollins over the years on other stuff. And I think it was very good for Regeneration as a book because it got into a hundred times more bookshops and around the world than Virgin could ever have managed because it, it was printed over here. It was printed in other countries. Well, Virgin would never have achieved that. You'd have had a couple of copies imported Imports, into yeah, yeah. You know, Mike's comics or whatever, and that would be it. So it was very successful. I'm rambling, aren't I? I'm really no, rambling. No, no. I do apologize for rambling.
1: Because one of the things that we love to cover is the '96 movie because it's sometimes ignored. They either talk about the. Well, it shouldn't be it's should, because it's brilliant. I it love a, it. I always enjoyed the movie. I, you know, I know there's some people who have some issues with different things. Suddenly, the kiss. Isn't the big deal it once was, huh?
3: It's funny that because it was uh, to me, it was never that big. I mean, I think there were other things I would have gone ooh about in the TV movie. Personally, I didn't like the Eye of Orion being part of the TARDIS. I thought that was Eye of Harmony rather being part of the TARDIS. I thought that was a bit silly. Um,
1: That made sense to me,
3: and I kind of
1: the half human
2: thing. Yeah, that's the big sticking point. Yeah, I thought that was
3: unnecessary. I thought maybe he was drunk. I, th- I thought Phil, as a Doctor Who fan, should not let that one go through. But his reasons for doing it, as he says in the book, perfectly valid. It was an interesting, thing, and he knew it would have people talking, and he was right. It did have people talking. It was it was the thing they talked about most.
1: He uh, channeled a little JNT in that. Um, in that, he JNT always knew how to create a little bit of a... a oh, yes. the next Doctor being a woman. Yeah, the next Doctor being a woman. <laughs> yeah, but, a, but you know.
3: Phil, yes, Phil, Phil's very <laughs> Phil would not be happy with me saying this. Phil and T are they actually quite similar in that sense, in that they're both incredibly clever showmen, publicity people, they knew what they were doing.
1: And Russell, to a certain degree. Yes. You notice that they, I've always seen that the, the minute Doctor Who is not in the news, something interesting is, you know, We've heard this today, we're hearing this.
3: But uh, that's not really fed by us. What we don't do is, is what, what we take from Russell is the, you neither deny or, or agree with anything, because all publicity is good publicity. Russell is a very, is possibly, oh, how can I say this without making it sound bad to the others? Russell, I think, is a lot shrewder than JNT or Phil Siegel. I think he's, a, he's, a much, he's much more of a player. I think he's much more intelligent. I think he's much brighter. I think he understands the industry the game, yeah. really, really well. And he knows when to try something, and he knows when not to try something. And I think certainly in the case of JNT, John was always went out with the splattergun approach of saying, let's throw everything out there and some of it will stick. And I think Russell and Julie have always been far shrewder than that. They know, they understand the industry, they understand journalism, they understand the world generally, and are very, very clever at marketing. They know what they're doing, and they've got a very good brand team behind them as well. And, and you know, when you have that many experts all knowing what they're doing, you can't help but succeed.
0: We'll be back with more of Gary Russell, and we want to take a moment to thank Audible, which is a sponsor of this episode of Doctor Who Podrack. We really appreciate Audible and their sponsorship. It's um It's because of what they do for us. We can bring this podcast to you. And more importantly, what Audible does have is lots of stuff that you'd be interested in because you're already a podcast listener. You already know the value of listening to audio on the go or when you like. And that's what Audible does. It gives you the opportunity to listen to thousands of science fiction titles or science and technology or any title that you like. They have over 50,000 titles to choose from. Drama
1: romance, comedy. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: we're talking sci-fi because we're geeks. Yeah. And this is a Doctor Who podcast and there's tons of Doctor Who stuff. There's tons of BBC stuff on Audible.com. I'm a subscriber. Lewis is a a subscriber. And so is Amy. As a matter of fact, we correspond all the time because she's always saying, you'll never guess what Paul McGann is narrating or, you will you know, did you hear about so-and-so? It's great. If you're a Doctor Who fan, if you're a British, if you're an Anglophile... There's tons of stuff available on there from actors that you know, narrating and authors, you know, of course, bestsellers and and famous books and things like that. Plus, all the missing Doctor Who episodes are on there, as well as some of the latest books. I was just talking to Lewis about this prior to the recording that right from day one, they have the Hornet's Nest, Tom Baker's new audio drama. Yeah, that just came out.
0: Tom Baker's back as the Doctor.
1: Yeah, and 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 they had it on day one that you can go and download it, and that's going to be my selection for September, because uh, I didn't order it. I just figured I'm going to download it on on Audible, and it'll get it instantaneously. And I'll probably do that actually after we stop recording,
0: and you can make I that. Because I forgot your... that it
1: came out today, and I was like, "Damn, I want to hear that."
0: And and for those that are listening that haven't tried Audible yet, you can make that your free Audible uh, download, your free audiobook download when you sign up for a free trial and. That you can do by going to com slash podshock and you'll get your free audiobook by going to that address. And we'll have a link to that on our website, org or podshock.net too. But again,
2: no, it's I, Audible I, I said Podcast. that my
1: September selection would be the uh, the Hornet's Nest, but you actually had a great suggestion being that we're, we've been talking with Gary Russell
2: in yes. this
0: episode. Well, Gary Russell has a it's called the Doctor Who Beautiful Chaos. It's available through Audible dot com. And Bernard Cribbins reads this story. It's unabridged, an and it's two hours and thirty-six minutes available through Audible dot com. And I'm gonna play a little bit of it for you now. Now if you don't if Bernard Cribbins doesn't ring a bell, he played Donna Noble's grandfather in the previous Wilf. series Wilf of um Doctor Who. So um this story does obviously involve Donner and the doctor, and here's a little bit of it right here.
2: wasn't with you. <laughs> no way I can win this, the doctor said. So I'm just going to let it go, all right? Donna opened her mouth to speak again, but the doctor reached forward and put a finger on her lips. Hush, he said. Donna hushed and winked. I win! And she gave him that amazing grin that she always did when she was teasing him and he gave her that sigh that admitted he'd been caught out yet again. She slipped an arm around his and pulled him close. So, what's the skinny? Skinny? The doctor nodded towards Chiswick High Road and dragged her out onto the main street, ready to get lost in the crowds. Except there weren't any. "'Indeed, there weren't very many people around at all, "'just a couple of kids on skateboards on the opposite pavement "'and an old man walking his dog.' "'The doctor raised his other hand. "'Not raining,' he said. "'Well spotted, Sherlock,' said Donna. "'Sunday?' "'You wanted Friday the 15th of May 2009, Donna. "'That's what I set the TARDIS for.' "'Donna laughed. "'In which case it's probably a Sunday in August 1972.' The doctor poked his head into a newsagent's and looked at the nearest newspaper. Friday, 15th of May, 2009, he confirmed. So... And there you have it. And...
1: <laughs> I wanted to hear the rest. <laughs> He's awesome, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. He just he... absolutely brings it to life. That's fantastic.
0: And uh, well, I, I just, I, it's going to fall into a spoiler, but there, there was just some. I kept on saying last year during his uh, during the 2008 series of Doctor Who that I always wanted Bernard Cribbins, you know, Wilf to um, to join the Doctor in an adventure, and I think my wish is going to come true. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. I, I mentioned Timothy Dalton being a, a national treasure for Britain and 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 Bernard Cribbins is is also a national treasure. We just the, the wealth of, of talent in just that performance. It's just ridiculous. It really is. It's ridiculous. So again, this is by
0: Gary Russell and it's the, the man we're interviewing in this episode. So it's something that you want to check out. It's available on Audible.com. You can make this your free Audible download selection. Again, if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash podshock, you'll get your free Audible book when with your free trial. And as I said, you can listen to Audible books just like podcasts.
1: I'm so screwed now because I wanted to listen. To, I wanted to download The Hornet's Nest. And now you played that. And now I'm like, what am I going to do? <laughs> well, seriously, I am like, you have to break it up. I don't know. I got to pick one now. Uh, well, you know what it is? I'm on the monthly subscription thing, so I guess I could just um, buy them both. guess I mean, otherwise, I'm gonna have to wait. Because I'm gonna wind up using the the hornet's nest is gonna continue for a couple months. So, uh what started out as a perfectly <laughs> innocent spot about Audible has turned into a uh, um uh, uh,
0: <laughs> a dilemma for you.
1: Yeah, it's a huge dilemma. Now. <laughs> it's a twin
0: dilemma. And we just picked out two here. They have fifty thousand titles to choose from. So, luckily, I I. Luckily we don't have the time to go through all 50,000.
1: <laughs> that's I'll download one you
0: download. But it. That's 80,000 hours of audible programs um from Audible. So anyway, check them out, go to our website, you can click on the link there or or again go to
1: slash podchalk for your free trial. I've been a subscriber for months. I know Amy's been a subscriber for years and and swears by Audible. So you're in good hands. <laughs> with, with Audible <laughs> yeah no, I know we just had some kind of trademark violation sure All of state is
0: thing. now knocking on our doors
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, here's a cease and desist letter from Mr. <laughs> Traponi Mr. Low Low Tro Trohoney.
0: <laughs> yeah I guess you don't have that problems with Deep <laughs> not much they can get wrong
1: there Depp yeah. Johnny <laughs> yeah, imagine that I'm looking for Ken Depp <laughs> that should be my big problem yeah, I... in life that I look like Johnny Depp <laughs>
0: You got some pirate movies for you to do.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get back to our interview with Gary Russell then.
0: From one Gary Russell works to another.
1: We jumped from the TV movie all the way to the current series, but in between there is the birth of Big Finish. Aye. Which is enormous.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You ever look at one of those things and go, I started, it's like a snowball. Kind of gave it a gentle push at the top of the mountain and suddenly at the bottom it's the size of there's a snowball the size of a mountain and it's brought down a few avalanches along the way. That's how I look at Big Finish. I started a little snowball and now look at it. And, and I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of, I'm so proud of the fact it's still going, I'm so proud of what I achieved in my eight years there. There's, I have no regrets about anything at Big Finish. It's become a
0: springboard to the to the TV series now. is so Russell many... always
3: cites it as being a very important reason why Doctor Who was able to come yeah, back, because yeah. there had been this this constant well, sense of drama still going on. There was
0: no series picked up after the TV movie, unfortunately. I mean, there was a five-year option that um, supposedly that um, Paul McGann was contracted for in case they picked up the series, but that never came to be. And then Big Finish really filled in that time gap between... The, between then and, and today, and, oh. and with the new series coming back. So yeah. it played an instrumental role in the, what we call the, the dark era or the, the, the wilderness years. The wilderness I,
3: I wish I could say we all pre-planned it as well. We <laughs> yeah. knew that in 2005 there'd be a new series, so we yeah. were just filling in as we went along. No, we just thought... I mean, we basically, Jason and I, went to BBC Worldwide pretty soon after the TV movie happened and said, would you be interested... Uh, I think what happened is, Paul McGann had done the reading of the novelisation, which I'd edited down to 22,000 words and destroyed, brutalised and cried about. But because of that, we went and said, well, look, you know, how about doing some original stuff? We'd quite like to get a licence to do audio drama because we did these things called audiovisuals back in the 80s and we probably shouldn't mention that to you because you might try and sue us. And they said, no, we're not interested. We've got all these plans for Doctor Who, blah, blah, blah. We don't need some small little company. Of course, then the TV movie nosedives, I don't think it bombed, I don't think it failed. It got like nearly 10 million viewers in the UK, which is pretty damn successful. But over here, it didn't work, and therefore there was no backing, therefore there was not going to be a series. So, a year after that, we did the first of the Bennies, And unknown to us, Steve Cole, who was then the editor of the BBC Books and all things Doctor Who at Worldwide, took the first two Bennies into the people we'd been to see a year and a half beforehand and said to them, look, we're obviously never going to do anything with Doctor Who. Why don't we give these people a license to do Doctor Who audio dramas? Because then we make money, whatever happens, and it either succeeds or it doesn't. What have we got to lose? And clearly they agreed. And suddenly Jason gets his phone call and he phones me up and says, we've been asked to go for a meeting at BBC Worldwide. We didn't know what it was about. We knew it was with Steve Cole, but we had no idea what it was about. And I kept thinking, Jason's a funny person to phone up about it. Because, you know, you only get to Jason when you want money. You go, hey, Jason, we want to do something really creative. Turn the other way. I'm just lifting your wallet out of your back pocket. <laughs> at least that was always my plan with Big Finish, was just to spend Jason's money. It's, it's a perfectly valid reason, I think, for doing anything in life. <laughs> but we went up there. And, uh, and Steve met us at reception. He said, oh, um, just to let you know, the people you're about to meet have listened to the first two Benny audios. And immediately my brain went, I know where this is going. And I think Jason probably did as well. And we went in for this meeting and sat down and they said, so we're very impressed with these sci-fi plays you've done. Um, are you interested in doing sci-fi plays? And they, I remember them so clearly, them using the word sci-fi all the time. At least they didn't say sci fi which is what most people say. And we sat there and they eventually said, would you be interested in having a two-year license to make brand new Doctor Who Audio? And I can't remember whichever said yes first. I'm feeling I might have gone, it's up to Jason, it's his money. If he says no, I will kill him. But the, the, that, that was a split second, and that other half split second was Jason saying yes. And we, then they left, and me and Steve and Jason went and sat in the, the canteen at BBC Worldwide. And I can tell you, Jason and I were just sitting there going, huh? Oh, what just happened? What just happened? What just happened? And Steve was going, look, just be really good with it, be really cool. This is going to be fine. Little did we realize that we would then have another year, I think, of nightmare of getting the deal sorted with, with people from worldwide going, yeah, of course, it's all going to be fine. Go ahead and make this stuff. And Jason being sensible, thinking, we're investing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds starting this up. This is not a small run thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of money in this. You know, On average, uh, in those days, the cost of mounting one four-part Big Finish story was about 18, 19, sometimes 20 grand a month. So that's a lot of money to put up front and outlay with the BBC saying, yeah, it's all fine, just go ahead and do it. We'll sort the contract out later. And Jason's going, no, I'm not doing anything till I get a contract, thank you very much. And I tell you, we actually recorded Sirens of Time and possibly Phantasmagoria without having a contract because we just got to the stage where we had to, we, we had to release by a certain date to keep BBC happy and to keep the money flowing but we still hadn't got a contract because the BBC were like yeah we'll do it tomorrow don't worry everything's fine just go ahead and make your plays and we were like okay but I persuaded Jason in the end that we might as well go and do it and so we did and we wrote to I mean I knew through conventions and things Peter and Colin and Sylvester I knew Colin and Sylvester very, very well indeed. Peter, I knew, I'd interviewed him a few times at conventions, but didn't know him socially. So what I did first is I wrote to both Colin and Sylvester and said what was going on, and are you interested in being aboard, and then I said to Colin separately, by the way, next time you see Peter, I'm going to send him a letter as well, can you just remind him who I am and, you know, that it's all perfectly legit. And I think within two days, Sylvester and Colin had both said yes, and then I learned subsequently in years later, talking to Peter, that he indeed did say yes, but only because Colin and Sylvester had said yes. So he was waiting to see what they wanted. They all talked about it. We'd also written to Paul and we'd written to Tom. And Paul's agent came back with a note, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, and Tom, you know, <laughs> bless him. So we kind of ruled that one out. And that's, that's how we did Sirens of Time. And then we went on from that. And then we never gave up with Paul. And we, we got no, 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 no. And there was one time we were coming out to Gallifrey. So this would have been 2000, I think, February 2000. And we got on the plane, and I was with Jason. I can't think who else was with us. Somebody else from Big Finish would have been with us, probably. I don't know, maybe it was just me and Jason. And he suddenly turned around, and he just showed me a letter. And I read it. And I gave him the letter back, and I went, OK. While I'm in L.A., I will make some phone calls. I'll make sure we have some scripts ready for him for for Monday. When we get back, we'll get some scripts over to him as samples of the kind of thing we can do. I said, or I can just send him pre-existing stuff. And he said, no, let's, let's get some stuff. So I remember I got to the hotel and I phoned Nick up. And I said, you know how I've always wanted to redo Sword of Orion? Well, how about doing it for Paul McGann? He's just said yes. And then I got Paul Mars to do Stones of Venice, and they were the two, I think we, we got done up in time to send to Paul, and I did send him Holy Terror and Spectre Lenny Moore, I think. They were the ones I sent him, plus these two that were written specially for him. And then by the time I got back, I was able to speak to Alan Barnes and say, Paul has said yes, do you want to write the first one? And, and Here's the spec that Jason and I have come up with for Charlie as a companion. And he came up, Alan came up with the name Pollard. Jason and I had a very busy time working out companions and panicking. And going, how do we keep Paul McGann happy? Ah." And this went on for another couple of months. And then suddenly it was like, we're going to Bristol. And we're going to be recording with Paul McGann. This is mad. And I had this, this little checklist of things I wanted to do. And it had three names on it. It had Bonnie Langford, Janet Fielding and Paul McGann and I was able to go tick Bonnie Langford and now tick Paul McGann and all I was waiting for was to be able to tick Janet Fielding. That took nearly seven years, (laughs) but I got there in the end. But Tom Baker was never on my list. It was on Jason's, top of Jason's list. I was never fussed about working with Tom Baker because I thought, I'd I'd seen Tom enough, I'd, I'd known Tom enough, I'd done Destiny of the Doctors with him and I thought he is never going to want to do this because he's not going to want to revisit Doctor Who. It's just not where he is. But Jason, bless him, kept trying and we, we would talk at conventions now and again and, and Tom would always say no. And we sent him and we sent him some scripts and um,
1: oh, Are we going to get rain? <laughs> <laughs> I you believe it's raining.
3: There's a nice big umbrella behind you.
1: Umbrella. Yes. Roll that baby out.
3: And so we, we spoke to Tom a couple of times and we sent him scripts. And Famously at a convention once he talked about this on stage, and we'd sent him Holy Terror, Stones of Venice, and Spectral Lanyon Moor. And he said this on stage at a convention, and he said, and I did what, what, exactly what I thought was the best thing to do. I let them slide off my knee and end up in the bin. And I just thought that was really mean and unnecessary, Tom. You did not have to say that at a convention. It got him a huge load of laughs and everything like that. But I just thought that was a little bit mean. And after that, I said, let's never bother with Tom again. It's just not worth it. And indeed, the only time we then did go back to Tom was when we were doing Sharda. And we'd spoken to Lala and said, you know, what are you thinking? Do you think do you think you want to do Sharda with Tom? And she was like, yeah, I'm up for that. That'd be a good laugh. That'd be great. But he didn't want to play ball on that either. He didn't want to do Sharda. He didn't, it was just so obvious he never wanted to do anything. So then we said, right... Let's do it with Paul. Let's do put Paul and Lala together because they'd worked together before. They'd done had we done Zagreus at that point, I can't remember which way around it had been. Yeah. I think we had done Zagreus, uh, so he was up for it and, and that's how we turned into we turned into Shada.
1: The
0: leg uh, of the table. Yeah, we're. Are you we're getting wet? Because I'm not.
3: To, I'm not getting wet at yeah. all. You might be getting Just wet. Water. I don't care if you're getting wet. I'm, <laughs> I'm bone dry under this lovely morning. How, how do you feel
1: about this new thing that Tom is doing for BBC? All right, and stay tuned to PodShock episode 162 for part two of our interview, our exclusive interview with Gary Russell. We'll he'll get into some of the. Uh, we'll, we'll start asking him a little bit about Dreamland and sarah jane adventures series three so stay tuned for pod episode 162 yeah. also the return of mr james Norton,
2: mm-hmm. who will
1: give us his report on whoville i was just going to mention that
0: gary russell was just uh in who 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 who, who was it hoover hooverville, hooverville. so the, yes. him and along with uh various others uh colin baker were there along with the head of john pertwee the head of John Partway. Yeah, I feel like a Futurama episode here. There was a, was a I don't know. A... Well, you
1: remember Dimensions in Time? They had the the Hartnell and Troughton head just floating in space in 3D. <laughs> it was completely bizarre. I tried to forget that Dimensions in Time. I, I kind of... <laughs> yeah, I understand.
0: Most people are I went through to t- some deprogramming out. meetings where they had
1: to, like, you know, just shout it out on me. <laughs> They're threatening to re-air that. Because BBC's having some kind of 3D week. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, we, we, we've talked enough for this episode. We'll be back on another episode of Dr. Who Podshock. I want to say thanks so much for supporting Dr. Who Podshock. And don't forget to check out the new Podshock swag. It's a brand new store. The old stuff's still available, but there's some brand new things. It was nice to see Mr. James Naughton wearing Yeah, he looked sharp with new it. Stuff. He certainly did look sharp, didn't he? Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, so check it out. It's Dr. Who Podshock. Uh, if you go to org or podchalk.net, there's links to our stores there, and you can get your Podchalk swag. It's always, nice to, uh, always a nice fashion statement at conventions to wear.
1: It's uh, it's a great way of supporting Podchalk, And on top of that, you've got Hurricane Who coming up. You've got... Um,
0: right around the corner.
1: Right around the corner. You have Chicago TARDIS as well. You have New England fan experience. That's all in the next couple months there's some in the UK too isn't there dimensions or well, I'll I'll look it up before is it the Regenerations in
0: Swansea or is that yeah. come, have So it there's really some to some
1: cons coming up on both sides of the pond no better way to show your support of Dr. Who Pachak than to rock out in one of the t-shirts and part of the proceeds go to um help supporting keep the keeping the the bandwidth the servers mm-hmm. and all that kind of jazz yeah. It's not much just
0: a couple dollars but it does you know every little bit helps
1: Absolutely absolutely
0: Don't forget, aside from our website, thegallifrandembassy.org or podshock.net, you can follow Ken and myself on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash lewistrapani, and Ken is at twitter.com slash kendeep. Of course, you can follow Dr. Who Podshock on Twitter at twitter.com slash Hey, if you use iTunes, don't forget to leave some feedback for Dr. Who Podshock on iTunes. Oh, and one more thing, if you're a blogger or a podcaster, and <laughs> and it seems like everyone is these days, and if you're serious about it, you may want to be going to the Blog World New Media Expo that's next month, October 15th through 17th in Las Vegas, Nevada. And if you're going, please go to our website, thegallifrandemacy.org or podshock.net, or you can go to arttrap.com and click on the button there to register now for the show. And if you are going, I'll be there, so be sure to say hello.
1: Okay, we'll see everybody next time on Dr. Who Podshock. Cheers.
0: Cheers. You have been listening to Dr. Who Podshock, presented by the fan-run GallifreyandEmbassy.org. Dr. Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Dr. Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next time for another exciting and informative episode of Dr. Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. Doctor Who Podshock theme music by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. This Art Trap production is presented to you by the Gallifrey Embassy and has been made possible in part by donations from listeners like you. Doctor Who
3: Podshock! What a sentimental old thing this TARDIS is.